Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Philip B. Levine, the author of A Problem of Fit, How the Complexity of College Pricing Hurts Students and Universities. According to Levine, a college education doesn't come with a sticker price, and perhaps he argues it should. Millions of Americans miss out on the economic benefits of a college education because of concerns around the costs. Financial aid systems offer limited help and produce uneven distributions. In the United States today, the systems meant to improve access to education have in fact added a new layer of deterrence. In a problem of fit, Levine examines the role of financial aid systems in facilitating and discouraging access to college. If markets require prices in order to function optimally, then the American higher education system, rife as it is with hidden and variable costs, amounts to a market failure. It's a problem of price transparency, not just affordability. Ensuring that students understand exactly what college will cost, including financial aid, could lift the lid on not only college attendance for more people, but for greater representation across demographics and institutions. As he illustrates, our conversations around affordability and free tuition miss a larger truth, that the opacity of our current college financing systems is a primary driver of inequities in education and society. A Problem of Fit offers a bold, trenchant new argument for an educational reform that is well within reach. Philip B. Levine is the Catherine Komen and A. Barton Hepburn Professor of Economics at Wellesley College, a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. He is the author, co-author, or co-editor of five books devoted to statistics, the analysis of social policy, and its effect on individual behavior. Philip Levine, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me here. So in the introduction to your book, you talk a little bit about this, but I'd like you to explain to our listeners what brought you to this project in the first place. Well, you know, I've been doing research on social policy and, and uh, you know, problems of economic disadvantage pretty much my entire career, uh, but never higher education um, and access to it. It really became an issue for me when my own kids um, started to think about college. You know, I'm an economist. I'm a professor. You know, I make a decent living. I'm not, I don't make a million dollars a year, but I'm not low income. But, in, you know, I've been saving for college for my kids pretty much their entire lives. And it just got to a point where I just wanted to know, like, had I saved enough? Was I going to be eligible for financial aid or not? Uh, and... I dug into the question and tried to figure out the answer, and it turned out that it was an incredibly difficult question to answer. And it just seemed to me that, you know, with a PhD in economics and a career spent doing quantitative analysis and working with data, if I can't figure out that problem, there is an issue there that a lot of other people face as well. Uh, and the, so that's what led me to think about this this issue of college access and financial aid, including information about college pricing in a much more systematic way. And so, uh, I, I mean, I think that fact enough is, um, is, is startling that, again, you know, a professor of economics can't, 
if you're daunted by the uh, the paperwork involved in financial aid, what do the what do sort of the rest of us, even you know some of us with PhDs though not in economics, right, uh, have to yeah have to go on. Definitely, I mean you know, and, and in reality, um, you know, my kids were going to go to college either way, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to to be able to say that. Um, but there's a lot of people for whom that's not true, um, and if you can't figure it out, then that's a real problem because, you know, you could be making important lifetime decisions on the basis of information that may not be accurate. So I, I want to start uh, before we get into the substance of the of your book uh, and ask you to read from uh, page 162. Uh, and this is the to the conclusion of your book, and it follows uh, a subhead, the review of the book. If you could just read that first paragraph for me. Sure. Uh, This book has focused on the pricing system in American higher education and identified three main problems. One, attending college costs less than people think. Two, colleges do a poor job of communicating those costs, leading to the confusion. And three, the actual price is still too high for lower income families in most institutions. So I think those three points are extraordinarily important for people to understand today. And I think your book does just a a tremendous job of explaining why those things are the case. So let's kind of dig into this a little bit. Um, In the first chapter, you describe the American financial aid system. And there is, I've described it as dizzying, but I think probably mind-boggling array of terms involved here. And, And the glossary that you provide is extraordinarily helpful, uh, but sort of without going through the the two pages of of terms, that whole laundry list of different concepts that you have to master. Tell us what works and what doesn't about this system. I mean, well, at the end of the day, we we live in a world in which financial aid is dominated by jargon. Um, you know, we have our own language. Uh, and that's great if you're a financial aid administrator and you're talking to another financial aid administrator. Um, but for regular people, that's not so helpful. Uh, just as a simple example, I think sort of the, you know, a key term, which is critical in the financial aid system, uh, is when, is this thing called an expected family contribution. So, which is funny because most people don't think about when you're spending, you know, 10, 20, $30,000, $80,000, whatever. Most people don't usually think about that as a contribution. Um, <laughs> right. But so the, t- the expected family contribution is the result of what happens when you, you know, spend an entire weekend or more uh, with your tax forms open and, you know, maybe hopefully drinking a glass of wine to fill out the FAFSA. Um, you fill out the FAFSA, the numbers go into a computer, you know, it does its magic and a number gets spit, spit out. And it's this thing called an expected family contribution. The, the name itself means, I think, nothing to anybody um, in the real world. But in reality, what the expected family contribution is, is an indication of how much the government thinks that you can afford to pay to go to college. So people who have an expected family contribution of $5,000 can afford to pay less than people who have an expected family contribution of $25,000. That number gets used in the financial aid system to determine your award. Uh, except that the only number that they tell you is the CFC, which you don't understand. 
so there's a recent law passed uh, a couple of years ago that's going to change the name. And starting in, I think, 2024, it will no longer be called the expected family contribution. It will be called the student aid index, which I'm sure completely clarifies the situation for almost uh, everyone. Old wine and new bottles, right? It's the same. You know, I mean, basically, it's still a term that nobody understands. It doesn't tell you anything you need to know. Um, but it matters a lot. So knowing what that number is, is really important because it really is critical in determining how much you will end up paying for college. So and and that that number, right, sort of leads us to the next chapter of the book where you describe something called an Econ 101 perspective on college pricing. So according to what you're offering here, what are some of the problems with how we currently price a college education? So uh, there's this thing called the sticker price, which the government requires firms, uh, firms requires institutions to report as this as a number called the cost of attendance, which is designed to incorporate all of the potential costs that are involved in going to college: so tuition and fees, room and board, books, toothpaste, everything. Um, that's the number that gets reported and that is the most easily known, most well known, uh, and it's very high. Um, it's just that most people don't pay that amount. I think we'll talk about, talk about that as we get to later chapters in the book. Um, but so why do we, so, you know, why do we have this system that sets this very high sticker price in a world in which basically nobody pays that or not very many people pay that amount? And it has to do really with economics. So, you know, at, um, what I talk about in the book is that at sort of at elite institutions with, with large endowments, In some sense, despite the fact that they charge the highest prices, they also have a pricing system that works, quote unquote, the best, and that high income people with a high expected family contribution, now that we've clarified what that term is, um, you know, pay roughly what they can afford. Uh, And that provides a system in which the additional revenue that comes in from high income people can be used to help subsidize the cost for lower income people, lower income students. and so at those institutions, they have a pricing system in which lower income people pay, you know, relatively small amounts of money. Um, high income people pay large amounts of money. And that and the, the fact that they have large endowments helps subsidize the lower income students, too. That system kind of works. And in some sense, in a, what we might think of as a good design of a system is, is sort of, you know, roughly speaking, proportional to your income. That's what you pay. Um, that's not what the public thinks because that's those, those are the schools that charge $80,000 a year, quote unquote. Um, but it, in reality, it works. Um, then you go to public institutions, public institutions can't charge $80,000 to high income students because the, the, the system caps tuition at a sticker price of a number like $30,000. Well, that's great. Except the only people who are paying that amount are high income students. So for them, they're getting a really good deal. Like this is, it makes college very affordable for high-income students to attend a public institution. Well, the problem that that creates is it now doesn't generate the additional revenue that can help be used to support the lower-income students. And so lower-income students at those institutions really don't pay an affordable amount. They're asked to pay more than that. Um, and actually, uh, you know, considerably more than that. 
uh, that would be fine if the state government provided direct subsidies to the institutions to lower their price for lower income students, despite the fact that the higher income students are paying a lower amount, that would work too, but they don't. Uh, and so, you know, so where you're left with is a pricing system that most public institutions where the higher income students are getting a pretty good deal and the lower income students pay too much, um, which doesn't quite sound right to me. Uh, then you go to you know less less well endowed private institutions and they just struggle because for them, you know they can't charge eighty thousand dollars a year like the Harvards of the world can because public institutions are direct competitors to them. They can't really charge a lot more than the thirty thousand dollars. Maybe they can get away with forty, maybe fifty thousand, um, because you have to pay extra than going to a public institution. People don't want to pay that. Um, so they, they end up charging sticker prices that could be sixty, seventy thousand dollars, and then pretty much every single student gets a merit aid award that lowers. The, so the maximum sticker price really is not the sixty or seventy thousand; it's more like the forty or fifty thousand. Although nobody knows that. Um, and so again, they don't then have enough money to subsidize lower income students. They don't have large endowments, and they don't have any state support they have the hardest time making college affordable for lower income students. So the economics of this system is one that basically just doesn't work. Uh, despite public perception, the institutions that do the best are the, the ones that charge the most, charge the most, quote unquote, the sticker price is the highest because they generate the revenue to help subsidize the lower income students. The rest of the system does not work. Um, and every place else, lower income kids are forced to pay too much because there's not enough money in the system to, to support it. Or they're dissuaded from even attempting to go at all because they they get the news about the prices of college uh, increasing all of the time. So that's sort of the, you know, the title of the book is called The Problem of Fit. And that's getting at this notion of, you know, the concept I'm trying to get across. Right? The concept, the basic concept, I think a legitimate goal, let's look, a legitimate goal for the higher education system is one where there is good fit for everybody. So what does that mean? So that doesn't mean that everyone goes to Harvard, not everyone belongs at Harvard. It's a very academically rigorous institution and, you know, a small number of people are academically qualified, have the, you know, can meet those standards. Uh, But the ones who can should go. Uh, And the same is true all the way down the line. So like, you know, uh, 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 flagship public institution has a set of students who are be really great fits for those institutions, you know, lower level state institutions, same thing, community colleges. And then there's even like, you know, you can make a compelling story that not everyone should go to college, that there's certainly, you know, trade schools, you know, learning to be an electrician or a plumber, that's great for someone, for some students. Um, But whatever the right fit is for you, that's where you should be. Uh, our pricing system does not really allow that. And so you have students choosing to go to, you know, state universities who can go to elite private institutions. You have students going to, um, uh, you know, lower level public institutions because they can potentially live at home instead of the flagship. You have students going to community college, like the whole system. And, And then you have some students not going to college at all. The whole system just leads to, as you indicated before, a significant amount of market failure to the extent that like people go to the wrong places 
because of the pricing system. And that's the concept of a problem of fit that I think we face in higher education today. And that leads to the subject of the third chapter. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know about Wellesley, but we're talking today on the eve of the first day of classes here at this institution. Um, and, you know, we're getting clobbered by enrollment declines. Um, and and part of that, of course, is driven by the notion of the demographic cliff and there being fewer people of uh, traditional college ages to attend college. But also, it seems to me that um, the the kind of fragile consensus that a college education is a worthwhile investment seems to be coming apart. And in the third chapter of your book, you discuss this issue. So I'll just ask the question, is a college education worth it? You know, there there is uh, considerable attention in the media paid to this notion of, is college worth it? Um, Asking this question as if there's a legitimate debate about whether to go go into an institution like yours, for instance, um, whether there's value in that. Uh, Among economists, there's not so much debate about that question. I mean, there's really quite a bit of evidence suggesting that uh, the returns to going to college is very high. significantly beyond the costs that are incurred. That doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't instances in which things don't work out. Certainly there's uncertainty uh, involved in this process, but like for the typical student, um, uh, getting a college degree is an investment that pays off. And like I said, among, you know, based on the, on the, on the research evidence um, that exists, this is not certainly on average, there's not much question that that's what happens, that this is a good investment. So let me ask you to elaborate on that a little bit, because, again, you know, obviously you're talking to a true believer here. So uh, I'm I'm convinced. Uh, But for anyone and and probably most of the folks on the New Book Network are also going to be convinced of this fact. But on the off chance that uh, some folks aren't, um, let's talk a little bit about that data and and why uh, the investment in the college education is, in fact, worthwhile. As a matter of fact, I just saw an article in, I think it was, I'm sorry, The Atlantic uh, that that talked about this idea. And the the author was essentially comparing, you know, they said, yes, it's, it's worth it if you end up going to, you know, locally here, Michigan, uh, but maybe it's not so much worth it if you go to uh, a small liberal arts, what he referred to as a boutique college. So, like I said, that's just not what the evidence shows. I, you know, so um, there is significant returns, for instance, to attending a community college. Um, it's it, the key is that you know where where oftentimes problems are encountered at the level of community colleges is that people don't graduate. Um, so, you know, and this is in part of the loan forgiveness debate that's been going on recently. Like, you know, it is a problem among community college students who borrow money to attend an institution that they then drop out of two months later, and then they got debt and no return. And those students struggle. That's clearly a problem. Um, There's also discussions about, you know, people who attend for-profit institutions, um, where for for the most part, those students got no return off of that investment and borrowed a lot of money to do it. And and, and that is definitely a problem. 
but really from community colleges on up, you know, get, getting a degree from those from from higher educational institutions, again, on average, is an investment that research shows pays off. That's not to say that it pays off for everyone. Uh, there's uncertainty in every investment decisions that people make. Uh, but on average, it's a good one and pays off, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, over uh, a student's lifetime. It's, it's really, it's, you know, I report calculations in my book and show the evidence that, that you know, it's not, certainly in my book, which focuses on four-year institutions, there's not really much of a question. You can, for instance, look at two students, you know, at some uh, public um public systems, there's sort of cutoffs. So, you know, I don't know the cutoffs, but I'm just making this up for purposes of example. You know, if you're over to get into the flagship institution, you need, you know, GPA of 3.5 and SAT scores of 1200, and then you get to the flagship. And if it's below that, you can't go to the flagship. Assuming that those numbers are correct. Like I said, I just made them up. Um, But Let's look at the student who has a 1210 on their SATs versus the student who got an 1190 on the SATs. One could go and the other couldn't. Um, the student with the 1210 ends up doing better in their life over their lifetime in terms of earnings. So you can see, like, comparing students who are essentially identical, because really those two students aren't really different. Um, the ability to attend, uh, to get a college degree is valuable. So uh, according to the the fourth chapter of the book, one of the biggest obstacles to college attendance is that students and their families just don't clearly understand what an education is going to is going to cost you. We talked about the sticker price. Um, that's very well publicized. You can go to a university's website and, and see, um, you know, the the cost of tuition, the credit hour cost, something along those lines. Explain to our listeners the your idea of price transparency and especially how our attempts to address it have really failed us. So uh, let's see. So schools are required by law to report the cost of attendance, which colloquially we refer to as the sticker price. Um, that incorporates every single expense that the student could potentially incur to attend, including travel. Um, that number is necessary because the federal government doesn't like to give financial aid to students beyond um, their ability to pay. So basically, you know, if, if, if you can afford to pay $60,000 based on the EFC and the school costs 80000 or whatever, you know, that's for an elite private school, but... 20,000 versus 30,000 at a public institution, you can't get $15,000 $15, worth of financial aid in the 20,000, you know, in the, in the public example. Um, and that's why the federal government requires schools to report that number. And that's why on every school's web page, you can find that number. It's the most easily identifi- identifiable number um, regarding college pricing. It also is wrong for almost everybody. So, uh, you know, over 85% of students receive some form of financial aid, which means they are paying a number less than the sticker price. So the number that's the most easily accessible is also the number that most people don't pay. Uh, That's a rather odd system of pricing. So what is it the number that people actually pay? Well, you have to incorporate the financial aid that they receive. 
So in reality, what we need to be able to communicate to people is not the sticker price, which they probably won't pay, but what would they pay after financial aid? Um, So in the chapter one or whatever, in the jargon chapter, you'll read that that's called net price. Um, So what's the price that you pay after uh, receiving grant-based financial aid is the net price. Um, We do a very bad job of communicating net prices because that's individual specific. Like every single student, depending on their finances, is going to pay a different net price. Uh, The federal government in 2008 required, uh, passed a law that's required schools starting in 2011 to institute these tools called net price calculators, which is hundred percent is the right idea. It's getting at exactly the idea I just communicated. Um, the problem is is that those net price calculators often aren't all that simple to use either. And as soon as, uh, an online tool tells you to go take out your tax forms to fill in some information, well, you just lost, you know, half the people, maybe more, because like, you know, nobody understands taxes. Most people don't even do their own taxes. They either let TurboTax do it or they hire somebody or whatever. Um, but like, you know, does anyone really know what their adjusted gross income is? You know, going back to our earlier conversation, I'm a PhD economist. I don't know my adjusted gross income. I know how much I made last year. That's not the same thing. Um So if you're going to ask people hard questions that they can't answer, it's probably not such a helpful tool. But that's where we are. And and you really and you need that number in order to make use of those calculators. A lot of times, yes, you need that number. It specifically says you need your tax forms. As soon as people read that they need your tax forms, they just click on the X and go, you know, do something else. Because, I mean, that's, that's as you said, you mean, you're an economist. Uh, that's an intimidating idea, even to sort of dig around in your files for, I mean, obviously, if it's for your kid's education, most people will consider it important enough. But for others, it's, that's, a, that's a daunting task. Yeah, you're going to get this instruction that says, you know, look at, this certainly right. was in the FAFSA, you know, look at, on this form, it's line 16 a on this form, it's the, it's the, it's in this spot, and this form, it's in this spot. And I was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then they just stop. It, and you cite some interesting research, uh, a case study, I think, where H&R Block uh, worked with um, financial aid in order to help facilitate this. Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Right. So in my, you know... Uh, earlier expression that people use TurboTax and H&R Block, uh, TurboTax and, and, and hire someone. H&R Block is someone that a lot of people hire. Um, and so there was this experiment conducted um, by H&R Block where at the end of the process, they tell you, you know, you owe $1,000 in taxes or you can expect a $500 refund or whatever. Um, for students who had college-age children, they then... So then at that point, the HR black people who know what they're doing essentially did a calculation for these people that said, and this is what you would pay if you want to go to this college, uh, you know, provide that net price information, individual specific to the, to, to this, to the families with, you know, college age students approaching college age. Um, and it was a, a real experiment. So if you're in the control group, they said, you know, you get a $500 refund, you know, go away. And if you were in the treatment group, you see you get a $500 refund and for your kid, it would cost this much to go to college. Um, 
and uh, particularly in the group where they said it would cost this much to go to, go to college and let's help you navigate that process because filling out the forms is complicated. Uh, a lot more people went to college. I mean, is it really that surprising? It, it shouldn't be. Um, and, and that seems to be, a, you know, maybe a service that uh, we should be providing for folks. Um, so the next chapter gets into the issue of affordability. Um, and affordability, as you point out, is kind of a slippery concept. So let me ask you, there's a whole bunch of questions that arise from this. What do we mean by affordability? Uh, how affordable is a college education? And what can we do to make it more affordable for those students who are discouraged from attending college due to affordability issues? Sure. So, I mean, let's face it, you know, counting other people's money is a very touchy subject. But at the end of the day, what we're looking for is a pricing system that says we want, you know, conceptually, at least let's leave it as a concept, I think it makes perfect sense. People should pay what they can afford to go to college. Um, how you measure how much someone can afford is clearly a, an incredibly difficult task. And let's face it, I mean, essentially it's an impossible task, except for the fact that we need to do it because that's how that matters in a, in a financial aid world. Um, that's what FAFSA is all about. So people fill out the FAFSA or at some institutions the CSS profile. The purpose of completing those forms and providing tremendous amounts of financial detail is to calculate a statistic or an estimate of how much the family can afford to pay. Is it perfect? No, obviously not. But a number is necessary. And that's how we do it. So, you know, we can argue, you know, till the end of the day about like, how can we tweak it to make it better, whatever. That's not, you know, that's neither here nor there for this conversation. The point is that it happens. And the point and the the goal is to estimate how much someone can afford to pay. Um, So I just conducted this exercise where, you know, uh, these net price calculators, which I just described as being a nightmare to execute. um, uh, One of the advantages of being a professor at a liberal arts college is I can hire students to do lots of things research wise. And one of them. Uh, was to slog through net price calculators for dozens, actually 200 institutions um, uh, for people with different financial profiles to get a sense of what is the school telling people that they're going to be asked to pay given their underlying financial characteristics and how does that compare to how much we can, that the formulas would say they can afford to pay. So what's the gap between, you know, taking the affordability number is the correct number, which again, there's issues there, but let's just ignore that for now. Um, Let's just compare how much the students are asked to pay relative to how much they can afford to pay for students at different positions, for different positions in the income distribution. Uh, This was an extremely difficult and time consuming task for this, for my student to have to conduct, um, but we did it. and I think it's very clear and probably not really all that surprising that at most institutions, lower income students are asked to pay a lot more than what they can uh, conceivably afford. So, uh, you know, for instance, it's not that difficult to imagine that for students making, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year, you know, those families typically don't really have a lot in assets that, you know, 
you don't need a fancy calculator to tell you how much they can afford. They can afford zero. Um, typical public institutions charge those students between five and $7,000 a year in cash. This is not the loan in the works. This is, you know, there's student employment. Like we can, schools expect people to work while they're in school to pay for some of it. They expect students to take out a loan to pay for some of it. And even on top of those amounts, um, public institutions still typically charge students an additional five to seven thousand dollars a year on average. Well, where's that money supposed to come from? Right? That's clearly a system that doesn't work. So, well, one place they can get it from is they can borrow even more, and then you know, then we have sort of this issue of well, where does the loan crisis come from? Um, that's a pretty good explanation for that. But it, but the you know where what we're where we're left is with a system where we expect low-income students to pay more than they can afford. And that's just, that's what the system is. High-income students do great. Um, We can complain about whether or not they should be paying $80,000 to go to Harvard, but the $30,000 to go to a public institution, they have, they should be, that's a good deal for them. Um, So we maintain, so in some sense, the goal of keeping sticker prices low at public institutions to maintain affordability does a great job of maintaining affordability for higher income students and a terrible job of maintaining affordability for lower income students. That doesn't seem right to me. So in in chapter six, you, and I think we're sort of pointing in this direction already, you offer some remedies for this. So how, according to your research, can we fix the pricing problem in higher education? Well, you know, from from my perspective, the simplest solution to this problem uh, is to double the Pell Grant. So the Pell Grant is the major form of uh, grant-based financial federal aid that provides essentially cash uh, to students and, you know, to lower income students, but, you know, up to like maybe $55,000, $60,000 worth of income, uh, family income per year. So, you know, not that gets you, you know, 40 to 50% maybe up the way of the income distribution. So roughly half of the country would be eligible for a Pell Grant. Um, The maximum Pell Grant now is just under $7,000. It's clearly inadequate because the calculations I reported earlier include Pell Grants. Um, If you doubled the Pell Grant, that would exactly wipe out the gap. Uh, And the lower income student who could now otherwise face a deficit of, you know, like I said, five to $7,000 a year. If you double the Pell Grant, there's no deficit. Um, that also doubling the Pell Grant would also extend uh, the number of students who would be eligible would go up the income distribution a little bit further to maybe something like 80 or $85,000 a year, which now you're clearly over half the, half the students in the country are, would be eligible for this award. Um, you know, it wouldn't be quite as much for the, you know, $80,000 students, but there'd still be something in there for, for them. Uh, so my calculations show that that would pretty much wipe out the affordability gap. That doesn't mean that college would be easy to pay for. So if you're a student at the $100,000 level or even the $75,000 income level, um, it doesn't mean it's easy or cheap, but we're not looking for easy or cheap. We're looking for affordable. Is there a way that that family should be able to make the system work and college accessible given that level of financial support. 
that should be a, a possibility. And that's really, I think, what we're after. So it's not, it's not, and I think you're careful to draw this distinction. We're not talking about a, a program of free tuition that's been sort of bandied about over the last couple of election cycles. So free tuition is a very complicated uh, policy, partly because what people mean when they fr- say free tuition differs. So f- literally free tuition isn't really all that helpful at all um, because, you know, a public institution that charges $30,000 a year is only, you know, maybe $15,000 worth of tuition and $15,000 worth of living expenses. Well, so if you just covered the $15,000, that doesn't help low-income families because where's the other $15,000 going to come from? You still got to live. Um, so that is an issue. Uh, I also, um, you know, find it troubling that, you know, if you make $200,000 a year, should you get free tuition? Um, you know, so do we need income limits? Like basic, the bottom line with free tuition is it's not obvious that it's providing the right amount of financial support for the families who need it the most. Um, and that doesn't make sense to me. There's families that we know need the help. We can even identify the extent to which the amount of help that they need. Why shouldn't we just do that? Uh, that's not free college. And, and again, the, what you're proposing by increasing the the Pell Grant as a way sort of benefits primarily lower income students and, and gives everyone in the system uh, what I like to think of as sort of skin in the game, right? I mean, you're still paying something. You still are making a contribution. Well, so first I would say it's not, you know, low and moderate income people. It's extended to that. Right. Sure. Um, you know, and so the skin in the game. So does it bother me if a student attending, a, you know, a four-year college in, or university um, takes out modest amount of student loans, um, not $100,000, uh, but something that they do have an ability to repay, certainly in a system that's combined with income-based repayment? Um, to make it feasible to pay back the loan if things turn out not to work out the way they, they, they want it. If that's the skin in the game that you're talking about, I'm fine with that. Um, it's the excessive amount of debt that could be required for people who have limited abilities or may have difficulty paying that back. Uh, you know, we certainly need to uh, uh, figure out ways to avoid that. You know, you can't get past the loan, uh, the debt crisis, student debt crisis issue if college is not affordable in the first place. And what I'm proposing is to find a way to make college affordable, particularly for lower and moderate income students. So in addition to pricing, the the pricing and transparency issues that you identify, um, you also note some other barriers to college attendance. Uh, let's talk a little bit about these additional barriers and and how you think we can alleviate some of the problems that they cause, especially for those lower and moderate income students. Yeah, it turns out that uh, I would argue very strongly, which is probably why I wrote this book, <laughs> that the pricing system in higher education is a huge problem. Uh And if you think about it, it doesn't really matter what other barriers there exist in the college going process if people can't afford it or think they can't afford it. They're just not going. Um, 
And so I would argue that that's the primary problem. Uh, that doesn't mean it's the only problem. And even if we devise a system, you know, my perfect pricing system that provides completely affordable higher education or access to higher education for everyone uh, doesn't solve our college access problems if getting to college still has procedural hurdles. Uh, so, you know, we have faith applying to forgetting about finances, applying to college is different, difficult, um, uh, learning about, you know, what are your options in terms of college is difficult. Um, you know, even to go back further than that, like basically, you know, the K through 12 education system has significant limitations to it. Um, and if you can't navigate the K through 12 education system, you're not going to be qualified or as qualified as you otherwise would be to go to college. That's a problem too. Uh, Sandy Baum and Mike McPherson also have this great new book out talking about, you know, college can't fix all of our problems. Uh, you know, we also need to think about earlier in life uh, interventions as well. And that completely legitimate point. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of the college going process itself, for instance, students who have parents who went to college themselves have a significant advantage because they understand the system better um, than first generation students. In all of these ways, there's just a number of other hurdles in place that prevent students from going to this best fitting institution that I talk about. Uh, and, you know, to truly address uh, issues of college access, we kind of need to fix all of these problems. Now, you know, cl clearly that's a tall order, um, but we can certainly think about making progress on them. And I still would argue that if we don't fix the pricing system, none of the rest of it matters. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the institution where I work, Oakland University, we typically are number one in the state of Michigan for uh, first-generation college students. And, you know, when I think about some of what they have to go through just in order to get through the doors, I'm, I'm sort of astonished by um, at least their level of dedication to, to going through this. Well, and those are the ones who have been selected in a statistical sense, not in, you know, not by anyone choosing them. Um, the ones who undertook all of that effort to do that. Right. So think about the ones who did it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and because even the ones who did, you know, they're still struggling once they get through the doors. So then they get to college and then, you know, um, perhaps they had difficulties in their, maybe their K through 12 education wasn't as strong in the first place or their, um, their understanding of the higher education process, like, you know, simple things like knowing that it's okay to go to office hours that your professors want to help you, um, which, you know, first generation students, for instance, may be more intimidated, whatever. Like there's just in, in, in any number of ways, there are these barriers in place and lowering those barriers are things that higher educational institutions need to be able to address. Uh, you know, we could sit here for a long time thinking about what all the barriers are, all of them. There's just a lot of them. Um, and to the extent that we're able to make prog progress, you know, nobody has a ma magic wand that can make all of this go away. 
but efforts to make progress in all of these dimensions make sense. So uh, as we wrap up today, um, let me ask, what are you working on in the future? Does, did this book inspire you to continue work in higher education economics, or uh, are, are you moving in a different direction? Well, I'm always interested in a lot of different things, but I do continue to do work on, on uh, higher education and college access. Um, I actually have a new paper that will be coming out in about a month, which I don't want to talk too much about. Um, because it's not out yet, but about sort of uh, racial differences in the financial aid system and, and how the system, there may be some inequities involved in that as well. Gosh, I'm sorry, we can't talk about that. And in a month, uh, we can call, you can call me back in a month. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, should have waited. Um, well, uh, Philip Levine, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this very important book, especially here on uh the eve for many students of, of going back to school or or for those who aren't thinking about the thinking about where they're going to be next year yeah so i think this is you know much more of an issue not for the students who are just about to enter because they're you know pretty much done with the process uh, you know they still actually have a lot of work to do but for the students who are thinking about that now is the time when students start thinking about what they're going to do next year and the year after uh those are the ones who need to be able to sort of bring along and I guess if there's a, if there's a, a a hopeful message to be to be taken from all this, it is for any of those students that that don't be deterred by that sticker price. I guess is uh, is is one way to think about it. Absolutely. So I think that you know, despite the fact that there's significant affordability issues in in higher education, they may not be as great as people think they are, and students and their parents uh, need to be doing their homework to answer those questions. It's not easy and we don't make it easy, uh, but that information is out there uh, if you dig deeply. Again, uh, thank you so much for for joining us this morning. Um, Once again, my guest today has been Philip B. Levine, the author of A Problem of Fit, How the Complexity of College Pricing Hurts Students and Universities from the University of Chicago Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network.